Hello and welcome to the 20th episode of the CCGI podcast. Last week, we interviewed Dr. Dean Smith and discussed his research as well as the Chiropractic Science podcast. This week, we have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Mike Schneider. Let's introduce today's guest. Dr. Schneider graduated from Palmer College of Chiropractic in 1982. He also earned a PhD degree in rehabilitation science and a graduate certificate in clinical research from the University of Pittsburgh in 2008. Mike is currently an associate professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of Pittsburgh. He's published over 80 peer-reviewed scientific articles. Dr. Schneider also received several large federally funded research grants from the National Institute of Health and the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute of PCORI. Dr. Schneider is currently working as a co-investigator on two large multicenter comparative effectiveness trials that are studying ways to minimize the transition from acute to chronic low back pain. His areas of research include non-surgical treatments for lumbar spinal stenosis, prehabilitation for patients undergoing spine surgery, and knowledge translation. Mike, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Well, we'd like to I mean, start right off by asking you some questions and, and learn more about what you do. We were hoping to, to start by asking you a bit about um, your research program at the University of Pittsburgh, something that uh, many of us have heard about but don't know much about. Yeah, so... Um just during my introduction there, we're talking about one of the um, areas that I'm heavily involved with right now are two large trials, um, one of which has been going on for a couple of years, one of which is just going to be get started. Um, both of these trials are looking at that transition from acute to chronic back pain. How can we um, you know, mitigate the number of people that turn chronic, which is kind of a different research question than I think traditionally has been done in um, in the field of spine care. And so those are two large trials we're working on. I've also just completed a trial um, of comparative effectiveness of different non-surgical treatments for lumbar spinal stenosis. Um, That's completed. We've also been going into the area of spinal kinematics using a very sophisticated biplane radiography system, which we have here at the University of Pittsburgh, that allows us to see spinal motion occurring and measuring that spinal motion to a tenth of a millimeter of accuracy. So we can literally be looking inside the body, seeing what the spine is doing. And we actually did that during cervical manipulation. So we now have uh, three-dimensional imaging of the spine during, during cervical manipulation. So we're, we're doing from basic science research all the way up to clinical trials and everything in between. We, uh, so one of our studies right now um, with the kinematics is we're, we're very interested in looking at the relationship between concussion, sport concussion, and up, upper cervical spine injury. We think that there's, um, they coexist. And as you may or may not know, University of Pittsburgh has a huge concussion research program, and they've pretty much ignored the cervical spine. So we've gotten their attention now that we need to be looking at upper cervical kinematics using this biplane radiography. So that, that's another area we're just getting started with that we may become another um, field of exploration for us. Now, Mike, you've, the last time you and I were actually in, in, together in person, you, you showed me some of those images coming from the biplane radiography. Can you maybe describe them to our listeners and sort of maybe give them a little bit more information on, on what that involves? Um, yeah, it's easier to show a picture, but yeah. <laughs> I'll do my best to try to verbalize it. So we have this very sophisticated imaging lab that has two X-ray units, would be the simplest way to describe it. 
Um, and they're digital, so we don't have actual film. So we have digital images of these two x-rays that are taken at different angles to one another. And one of the beauties of this system is that it's very low-dose radiography, unlike traditional video fluoroscopy, where you turn a unit on and you literally blast somebody with x-ray for a couple seconds to see motion. For example, a flexion extension view of the lumbar spine might expose somebody to three or four seconds of radiation. The way our system works is that it pulses the x-ray um, at the lowest dosage. It would be 30 pulses per uh, second. So these are very short, two millisecond pulses of x-ray. So in a one-second exposure, so to speak, it's really only 60 milliseconds of exposure. And then from these two x-rays, motion x-rays, which kind of look like fluoroscopy, we also get a CT image of those bones of the spine and then superimpose the CT image digitally over the two plain film, if you will, X-ray motion to develop a three-dimensional model of the spine. And then the measure, measurements are made off of that three-dimensional model, which literally looks like, like a spine in motion. Yeah, I'd, I'd never seen images like that before, and, and I'm not aware of any other labs that are really using that. So you, you guys are really breaking a lot of new ground. We are. I mean, again, this is one of the beauties of um, doing chiropractic research within a research-intensive institution like University of Pittsburgh. I mean, frankly, it might be a little politically incorrect to say this, but it's true. The chiropractic colleges anywhere in the world just don't have the resources like we have at a place like the University of Pittsburgh. So for chiropractic research to advance really into the 21st century using this really high technology, very expensive equipment, I think it's best done outside of the chiropractic colleges, frankly. Yeah, like you said, the, the small standalone institutions, they, it's, it's very difficult for them to, to develop resources like that or, or have the capital to purchase them. So. Yeah, it's a you know a bigger research institute does does certainly offers a lot more options to you, right? Yeah, I mean that's an understatement. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the other programs that you the, you've I know you've been quite involved with at at the University of Pittsburgh is is uh, getting the the primary spine practitioner program underway and getting it launched. Um, some of our listeners probably aren't overly familiar with the program, but uh, what can you tell us about it? Sure. So we. Um, literally started last year, our first uh, cohort of, of, of students, if you will. Students are in, in our primary spine practitioner certificate program. The students, if you will, are licensed chiropractors and licensed uh, physiotherapists. So this is a program for physical therapist or a chiropractor who wants to differentiate himself or herself um, as being an, sort of an expert in spine care. And the reason this, this certificate program got started is we're starting to see uh, in the U.S. and Canada, by the way, and other countries around the world, this need for um, a first contact provider for patients with back and neck pain. Um, we might be a little too close to the issue sometimes to see the bigger picture. The bigger picture is that it's silly for a patient with back pain to be go seeing a primary care physician. Um, 
because the primary care physician is not trained in musculoskeletal diagnosis. Um, chiropractors are, uh, physical therapists are, but, but not the primary um, care provider. So there's a growing recognition that we need first contact providers for back and neck pain. Now, a lot of chiropractors will say, well, I'm already there. Well, yes and no. Uh, most chiropractors are solo practitioners. This primary spine um, practitioner is going to be working in an integrated team approach with other providers. And so it requires a little bit more training to be practicing at, at this level. Um, but as far as the program itself, it's pretty easy for your listeners just to go to our website. We have um, – it's psp.pit.edu, P-I-T-T, like Pittsburgh. So at psp.pit.edu, um, we have a nice web page that outlines what the course consists of and, and what the, um, um, the process is for applying. Yeah, and, and I know I've, I've looked at it, and there's, there's some online education involved and then some, some residential time spent, uh, spent some weekends spent uh, at the university there, which I'm sure uh, would be really great for people to see the environment that, you, that, uh, that you've been establishing. I mean, so the executive summary, if you will, about this PSP course is that it consists of five units, as we call them, yep. and a unit consists of a 12-hour a live weekend and another 12 hours of online distance education. In fact, it's what we call the flipped classroom concept, that for the first live weekend, you would actually do the 12 hours of online training first, then come to that weekend with that foundational knowledge, and we would build upon what you've done online. So essentially the five units are 24 hours each, 12 online and approximately 12 live workshops. And then at the end of the five units, we have a certification exam that, that um, consists of actually, we use standardized patients from our medical school and we basically have the, um, the person who wants to get certified work up that standardized patient as if they were a new patient and we assess their competency in um, assessing um, a patient that way. Well, that's, uh, it sounds like such a fantastic program. And uh, so you're, you're now taking in your second cohort? Well, right now we um, are making plans for this, this fall to start our, our second cohort. Right now um, we're just dealing with the first group. We're actually up to be doing our fourth unit pretty soon here. We wanted to get through the, a cohort of all five before we started our second group. And we have plans to try to offer this in other locations other than Pittsburgh um, as time goes by. One exciting thing is, uh, I don't know, uh, in Canada, if you've heard of the ISAAC program that's, uh, that's occurring in Ontario, it's I-S-A-E-C. Um, that was a demonstration project that now looks like it's going to go province-wide where it's not exactly the PSP model, but it's pretty close, where they have these designated physiotherapists and chiropractors who will provide um, second opinions before a patient's allowed to uh, see a, a spine surgeon. So rather than waiting for six to nine months to see a spine surgeon, the primary care doc will send their patient to these designated physiotherapists and chiropractors who are essentially acting like PSPs. They're making the determination where that patient's condition is severe enough to warrant a specialty referral on to a spine surgeon or even to get an MRI. And this has been a very, very successful program. And 
we've been in contact with the people up in Ontario to see if we might maybe have some um, collaboration between their program and our PSP program. Definitely, and, and they, I believe they've seen decrease in MRI referrals. Uh, I know they're fairly low back specific, and, and for our listeners, uh, Isaac stands for Interprofessional Spine Assessment and Education Clinics. Uh, but it, but there is, uh, it's been going on for a while now, and there is some, some really good, uh, there are some really good initial outcomes from from that project. Yeah. So at, when I was in um, Banff a couple of weeks ago at the ISSLS conference, I was talking to Kent about this. The developer of that program is a spine surgeon from Toronto by the name of Raj Romperstad, and he hasn't published this yet, but he presented it at the conference that this. Um, Isaac clinics have reduced MRI utilization by over 30%. Um, and they've, it's also led to decreased waiting time to see a spine surgeon. And what's really interesting is he said that now, as a spine surgeon himself, if he saw 100 patients, let's say, in X amount of time, those 100 patients, he'd operate on 15 of them. 80, approximately 85% of the patients he did exams on didn't need surgery, and I don't have to tell you in Canada, that doesn't go over well when a patient waits nine months to see somebody, you only be told you don't need surgeon. They say, well, why didn't somebody tell me this sooner? So as a result of the Isaac program, he tells me that now over 90%, it's flipped, right? Over 90% of the patients he examines actually are surgical candidates, which is huge. Um, where it had been reversed, where 85% he's turning away, now he's only turning away 10% because they're more appropriately um, um, been filtered to him, and that's exactly what they want. So that's one of the reasons why um, the Ontario Ministry of Health is going to now open this up um, province-wide. The question I had for him is, who's going to train? Where's the training program for these physiotherapists and chiropractors to act in this role? Um, and I think that's where our PSP program might dovetail nicely with their efforts. Completely, because the, the financial incentive is, is quite clear when you look at those those outcomes. But um, actually, getting chiropractors and, and physiotherapists to that uh, that standard, that that uh, consistent standard of care, uh, is you know, uh, that important uh, gap that needs to be filled. Well, you know, in, in my perspective, it's well-known where I stand on this issue, I think it gets back to the, from the chiropractic profession, it comes back to what's our identity as a profession. And I've argued this for years and published on it many times that I feel that chiropractic should be primary spine care. I think that's what we should be. Um, some of us are already there, but I don't think as a profession we're quite there because as a profession we still argue, I often joke, we're still trying to decide what we want to be when we grow up. Right? Some of us want to be primary care physicians treating everything. Some of us want to treat subluxation. Some of us are wellness doctors. Some of us are sports medicine doctors. And some of us are primary spine practitioners. Well, until a majority of the profession agrees that we want to be spine, um, we're going to keep having this argument. So what we decided to do here at Pittsburgh was say, look, um, you know, if the chiropractic profession doesn't want to make a stand on what its identity is, 
we'll just offer this program to chiropractors and physiotherapists and whoever wants to take the training, this certificate will make you stand out as, as being excellent at spine care. Because there's a demand for this out there in the world and it's kind of sad that the chiropractic profession, just at least in America, hasn't stood up to the plate to say, yeah, that's what we do. We just, I don't, for the life of me, I can't understand why we can't just say that, but we don't. I completely agree. Um, so I also wanted to ask you, obviously, Kent and I are with the Canadian Chiropractic Guideline Initiative, and, and we, of course, need to ask you a bit about guidelines. And we we're hoping you could tell us about the importance of, of guidelines in your work and, and how, you, how you see them helping the average clinician. Sure. Well, as you know, I'm, um, I think, one of just two Americans on your committee, right? <laughs> yeah. So you have to give me an honorary Canadian citizenship do. or something. Uh, I don't know what. <laughs> but um, so I think, I, I think guidelines are extremely important. It, it kind of dovetails with this primary spine practitioner program, right? We have such wide variation in care. Um, and as a clinical researcher myself, I, I used to think that, wow, I'm going to design this great randomized trial, publish my results, and all of a sudden, magically, everybody will be following, you know, the results of my trial, which are so compelling with all this evidence. But as we find out, the reality is that clinicians, not just chiropractors, all healthcare clinicians tend to ignore evidence, right? And so these guidelines can be very helpful because they start with systematic reviews of literature. We look at the best evidence, and sometimes the, the best evidence doesn't give us clear answers, but with a guidelines committee uh, of clinicians who can take that evidence and synthesize it into a clinically meaningful way, um, I think that resonates with clinicians. Right? Clinicians want other clinicians telling them clinic, clinically meaningful information, whereas just reading systematic reviews, you don't get that from systematic reviews. Um, the challenge with guidelines is they can be ignored as well. And I think that's where our challenge is going to be, specifically with this Canadian um, guideline initiative, the real, when the rubber's going to hit the road, when we try, we try to get into the knowledge translation piece of it, right? How do we get that guideline actually implemented in real-life clinical practice, not just publishing another guideline? Yeah, that's, I mean, that is definitely one of the challenges in the, in the guideline world is, you know, you can produce this, this fantastic document that's gone through the literature and, and hopefully come up with some, some answers, but unless it actually gets into the clinician's hands and, and we get them using it, it's, you know, it, it's a wasted effort. Right. So my, my challenge back um, to the CCGI would be um, where's the knowledge translation piece of this? What, you know, what, Hopefully, there's strategies in place for trying to implement the guideline more broadly than just publishing it. Certainly, and, we, and, and you know, it really is a multifaceted approach. It's, it's there's no one strategy that 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 uh, the golden ticket. Uh, it, it's a really combination of efforts, which is uh, which is keeping us busy. <laughs> Yeah, and so yeah, Mike. Besides sitting on the on the spinal stenosis guideline committee that CCGI has established and and working on that guideline, you've you've published quite a bit in stenosis. Otherwise, uh, comparing interventions and exploring patient experiences. 
What, what role do you think chiropractors play in the management of spinal stenosis? What, what could we be doing, doing to do better? I think we could be doing a lot. I think that, well, first of all, let's talk about the enormity of the issue here, right, that lumbar spinal stenosis is the number one reason why patients over the age of 60 have spine surgery. It's huge. And as we know, Canada and the U.S. are um, over 60 populations, one of the fastest-growing demographics. So this is going to be – it already is a public health issue. It's going to get even bigger as time goes by, as we see the silver tsunami, as they're calling it, in the U.S. Um, so there are a lot of people who, 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 who don't need surgery but have stenosis. And it's like a lot of these g- degenerative conditions um, that it's not, there's no cure for it, um, but what, what is the management? And I think the chiropractors um, have tended to shy away from treating stenosis patients because they don't, they don't think that they can do anything for it, right? That this is a condition that, hey, it's, de- it's degeneration of the spine. Anything I do is just going to be temporary, so why bother? So I think the first thing we have to do is get over that mindset. Um, and, the, you know, my trial hasn't been published yet, but my trial is going to show that there are some things that we can do as chiropractors that are very helpful for, for stenosis patients. And my co-author and colleague and also a good friend of mine, Carlo uh, Amadalia from, uh, from Toronto, is also going to be publishing a, a trial that shows that, that chiropractors do have a, a role to play in the management of lumbar spinal stenosis. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, certainly spinal stenosis isn't a new problem, but it's one that's, that's increasing. And it's, you know, there's... It, it had been sort of a gap in the literature, so it's really nice to see folks like you and Carlo really helping to fill in some of those, you know, some of those, uh, some of those gray boxes. Yeah, and you have a colleague there in Calgary, uh, Christy Tompkin Lane, who's a physiotherapist, who's doing a lot in this area as well, and we've been trying to collaborate with her. In fact, we're, we're trying to get a little interprofessional lumbar spinal stenosis group together to brainstorm ideas where we can. Um, you know, physiotherapy, chiropractic, we should put our heads together um, to try to manage this condition. And I've, we've also been in contact with physical medicine rehab physicians who are um, also very interested because they're, they're non-surgical as well. So I think you're going to see a, a, a big shift here in the mindset um, that nothing can be done short of surgery for stenosis to let's try to find out non-surgical ways of managing these patients and the nice thing is, from a, a chiropractic perspective, we already kind of have this mindset, right, this idea of maintenance care or supportive care. I think there's actually um, some value in that, although some people tend to say, ah, you know, that's just um, subluxationist uh, thinking. No, I, I think that for this lumbar spinal stenosis population, an ongoing kind of management, and that doesn't mean adjusting your spine every week for the rest of their life. But I think that some kind of ongoing management and periodic care is necessary for, for this patient population. And I think it will be useful for, for clinicians to understand what outcomes they should be tracking, what, what should they be expecting, what should they be looking for when they are managing these patients. Yeah, and when you, and you deal with these patients, it's different than back pain, right, where what's your pain level today, Mike? Oh, it's a 7 out of 10. Well, we got you to 2 out of 10, so we had a success. A, a, a chronic degenerative condition like lumbar spinal stenosis, we may have to rethink 
what our outcome measures are, right? The standard Oswestrian pain score may not be as helpful for this type of patient. We may have to be looking at it differently. Um, you know, that like for example, the patient-specific functional scale. You know, what three things, Mike, can't you do right now as a result of your stenosis? Let's rate each of those on a zero to ten scale, right? And as time goes by, is that you know, are those functional activities improving? Or maybe they're not improving, but we're slowing down the deterioration process. So I think. Um, as a researcher here, we, it's forcing us to rethink the traditional ways we measure outcomes. And I believe Carlo is, is tracking uh, steps, you know, as simple as a pedometer. And so reframing that, you know, like you said, the typical uh, numeric pain rating scale, reframing from that, that approach is, is going to be useful for clinicians. What's also useful, you know, Carl and I both have been doing this, um, involved with qualitative research, right, which is a completely mm-hmm. different area of research where we go, we've been having focus groups with patients who have lumbar spinal stenosis and, and just ask them, right, isn't, you know, one of the um, biblical sayings, ask and ye shall receive. Um, if you just ask patients what's important to them, what a concept, right? Hey, we're going to do, do a research study here. Um, folks, you all have lumbar spinal stenosis. Here's some things we can measure. Which do you think are important? Which do you think are not important? And it's, it's pretty eye-opening to hear what patients say. We've also been doing qualitative work. We've done this with physical therapists. We're going to do it with chiropractors as well, where we ask physical therapists what their beliefs and attitudes were about treating people with lumbar spinal stenosis. And that was interesting, too. We heard a, a lot of, like I told you a moment ago, this sort of defeatist attitude from the physical therapist saying, well, you know, they're old and they have arthritis of their spine and, you know, what can I really do? I put them on a, you know, a treadmill or an exercise bike for a couple of weeks and I don't really expect much to happen. And then it becomes a vicious cycle, right, where the patient doesn't think that anything can be done for them. They go to a chiropractor or physical therapist who also doesn't think that anything can be done for them. And so nothing gets done because nobody thinks that they can do anything. It's a pretty sad state of affairs. Yeah, and, and that's I think where where research can really you know step in and and be that you know hopefully that positive force that that reverses that that uh, that line of thought. That's exactly. What we now we're going to have at least two randomized trials that are going to be published pretty soon here that um, had some pretty strong findings in favor of. Uh, physical therapy and chiropractic intervention. So that might be the spark. And I know Carlo, we've talked to him about this, is getting on the road and actually teaching weekend courses on here's how you do it. Here are the exercises that you would do. Here's some of the manual therapy that you could do. One thing that really came out of our focus groups with patients that really surprised me was how patients said, you know what, I'm tired of going to a physical therapist or chiropractor who's afraid to do something to me. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, they, they treat me with kid gloves. I don't want somebody treating with kid gloves. I don't want them to, you know, make me hurt. <laughs> um, it, it's, almost, it's almost like they're asking, you know, come on, work me out. Work me over. Do something to me. Don't just put me on an exercise bike and put a hot pack on my back. Make, make me do something. And um, when we talked to physical therapists and chiropractors, they said, yeah, I guess I'm guilty of that. I, 
I don't want to hurt this person. And, I, and Carl and I, in both of our trials, we had no adverse events with our patients other than, you know, the typical thing you see in chiropractic where somebody might be sore for a day or two after a treatment, but nobody had a broken bone, nobody had a heart attack, nobody had any serious adverse events. So I think we tend to underdose our older patient, and that's what's coming out of our research as well. Let's, let's not be um, ignoring that fact that this is an older person, but gosh, just because they're older doesn't mean that we can't be a little bit more aggressive with them. Well, that's a fantastic quote. We tend to underdose our older patients. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm not saying we should o- we should overdose them and break their bones with no, you know, yeah, uh, uh, overly aggressive manipulation, <laughs> right? But I, I think you know some caution some caution is necessary. But maybe yeah. we're over cautious might be a better way of saying it. Certainly, yeah, certainly. Well, this has been obviously incredibly valuable. I, I, we're running out of time here, unfortunately, Mike, and, and but we really appreciate you taking the time of your busy schedule to, to meet and chat with us and, and to share the work that you're doing. Uh, it's incredibly valuable for our listeners, uh, and it really is a pleasure having, having you with us today. We want to encourage our listeners to learn more uh, about the Primary Spine Practitioner Program, and uh, we will, of course, uh, share links to um, you know, recent uh, published work. Uh, by Dr. Schneider, um, so please have a look at those if you haven't done so already. Yeah, Mike, thanks uh, Thanks for joining us. It's, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Likewise. Have a good day. Yeah, you too. And uh, thanks again to our listeners for tuning in, and we'll look forward to bringing you our next guest in a couple of weeks. Bye for now.